Well, welcome, uh, listeners, readers, and watchers of The Line. You have uh, Matt Gurney and Jen Gerson here. Oh, what in the world day is it? It is November 18th, 2022, and uh, we are back to do our weekly dispatch meeting. Hi, Matt. Hello, Jen. This is, I think, as regular podcast listeners will note immediately, this is unusual. Um, We are doing this using your computer and my phone because I just flew across the country to go to a conference in Halifax. And when I got to my hotel room here, I opened my suitcase and I had one of those little slips in there saying that Canada Border Services or whatever had opened my bag and inspected it, but they had not removed any items. And I went, oh, okay, that's fine, whatever. And then I opened my laptop computer and the entire screen is colorful purple streaks. So I think someone was inspecting my luggage and dropped it. Uh, That would be the most um, uh, innocent interpretation. My interpretation is that they saw that you were a journalist traveling to a particular conference in Halifax and decided to go sneaking around your computer and they broke it. Uh, I think think I'm too boring to spy on, but I guess anything is possible. I mean, how many interesting people do you think there could possibly be in Canada? It's not, it's not a big, like six. I would, I would, I'd spy on it. Be like, I, I, I want to know what that meant. I don't know. Is that you? I'm, I'm too modest to ever assume I'd be spied on. Um, but I definitely I'm going to have to either get my computer fixed or replace it, which is super annoying. It still makes all the right sounds, but it it is not like there's no screen. So maybe this is an easy fix. I have to point out, though, I'm having bad luck traveling for work with my laptop because when I went to New York for us in the summer and then I wrote about stuff uh, for us in the line, when I came back, my computer, it was just a complete brain cramp on my part. Uh, it ended up in the wrong um, tray at the security scanners at LaGuardia. So they had the security at LaGuardia had to mail me my computer two days later. Jesus. And then now fly to this event for the line in Halifax and my screen is broken. So well, I, don't, gonna, I don't know, maybe are I you not don't putting know if your I should travel your, with my computer. Yeah, are you not putting your laptop in your in your check-in? Your your, your carry-on? Normally, uh, well, I did in New York and that's how I ended up losing the damn thing. This time it was in my uh, packed luggage because I didn't have a carry-on. I just like, I it's such a quick and easy flight. I didn't even bring a carry-on. I just got on the plane and fell asleep. Yeah, man, you always gotta. I mean, just business traveler talking, talking from my husband here. You always gotta, gotta keep your laptop with you, man. Never, never, never pack your bag. Well, I, I realize that now. And yeah, honestly, I know. I That's really helpful better. advice for to... you. Really helpful advice for you at the moment. I know. Um, you know what? I mean, I, I did think about it even this morning because I packed in a real hurry last night. I didn't even think I was gonna bring a carry on. Uh, and then kind of at the last minute, I ended up throwing a backpack into my luggage in case I end up needing it here. But um, the week was pretty frantically busy for me. And I basically packed in about 10 minutes last night before falling into bed and setting my alarm for my flight this morning. So not my most organized trip. And I look forward to getting home and getting my screen repaired. Anyway, yes, well, but anyway, that, I've that, got that a is why hard... our podcast will sound different today. Indeed. Uh, I've got a heart out as well because I've got to go pick up my son at the half day on Fridays. So uh, I can't spend an hour chatting about the news. So let's get right to it. You. Had How been... long can you spend then? Uh, oh, like half an hour. 
Yeah, okay. I mean, even, even if we do like a tight 20 minutes, would be fine just because yeah, I yeah, got to get I, up to the, the conference itself. Yeah, so let's keep it pro, uh, brief on both of our both of ourselves. Also, to spare our, our poor and long-suffering listeners. Um, so you wanted to talk about POEC. Yeah. I always forget what the actual acronym stands for, for the Public Operations Emergency Committee. The Public Order Emergency there Commission. Thank it's you very the, much. It's the Commission into the Public Order Emergency. Uh, it was an interesting week, and you and I have been careful in everything we've said about this so far to not jump to any conclusions. Um, we're, we're waiting to see what the, the final testimony is. And every week we're reminded of why that's important because we do keep learning things that are important and matter. And a really interesting couple of developments happened uh, this week. I'm, I'll keep my powder dry on this one, but there was something I had asserted in one of my dispatches from Ottawa back in February and I had really, really, really been waiting to see some confirmation because I stuck my neck out a little bit on something. And this week, we finally got the confirmation I'd been waiting for. So just purely as an insecure journalist, I like heaved a big sigh of relief. I was like, phew, okay, that's good. Um, the other thing that I think is emerging, and this is the bigger picture, and, I, and I've written a column for TVO about this, is that we, up until now, it had looked like the dysfunction was almost entirely the fault of the city of Ottawa, right? Like we, the way the testimony has rolled out has been that we kind of took a really close look at the city of Ottawa. Then we looked at a bunch of other stuff and now we're kind of moving on to take a closer look at other sides of how this unfolded. And up until now, the city of Ottawa, which had just totally pooped the bed, like they looked pathetic throughout this thing. They look terrible. What I'm starting to see now is signs that there are other people who look awfully bad too. And one of them is a regular character in our dispatches of late. It's RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky. Mm, so tell us a little bit about why she looked bad this week. I think the easiest way to explain this is what was revealed this week, and this was immediately seized on, and this was written about widely, was how Lucky did not believe that the Emergencies Act was necessary mm -hmm. and went into the cabinet meeting where the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act was necessary. And she just didn't, <laughs> she didn't say anything. And her excuse was, well, hey, I wasn't on the, the scheduled uh, speakers list. I wasn't on the list of people who were scheduled to speak today. But in testimony this week, the prime minister's national security advisor that was saying, I thought it was necessary. And Commissioner Lucky should have stuck her head hand up and said something if she disagreed. So we have this wild situation where apparently the leader of the RCMP, Canada's top cop, did not agree with the federal government that all of the law enforcement options uh, had not been exhausted. The feds seemed to have concluded that they were done, that they had nothing else they could possibly do. Meanwhile, the top Mountie is like, oh, no, we had other options we could do. But she just didn't say anything. And when she was testified and cross-examined about this at POEC, her response was, yeah, you know, in hindsight, maybe I should have said something. So I mean, is there is there what? a point where we have to come to the conclusion that Commissioner Lucky is 
dumb? I don't. I don't I, I don't want to make a personal conclusion like that because I don't know anything about her as a person. I assume one does not rise to her to her uh, position uh, while being dumb. But I think at the very least, we have to start wondering. And you and I were we were out of this gate months ago. Commissioner Lucky needs to be fired. Oh, yeah. And, she needed to be fired you know, three scandals ago. Yeah. But I just you know, think funny, I, like. I don't think I'm making a personal comment on her as a human being. I'm saying if you were to look at the pattern of her behavior after, you know, mess up after mess up after mess up, you have to come to the conclusion that she's not bright. I, I, I well, don't know what as else I to snarked, say. I got snarky in my TBO column and I said the available evidence seems to suggest that Commissioner Lucky does not shine during meetings. She doesn't shine at all. As in meeting, she's dim. She's she's dim. Well, remember, the reason we've been on her case in recent months is because of the Nova Scotia um, uh, massacre, the Mass Casualty Commission, where in a meeting, a teleconference, she chewed out her local staff for like not doing enough to help the liberals advance their gun control agenda. And then meanwhile, and then like months later at POEC or uh, not, not at POEC, but at cabinet during the crisis, uh, she's like, well, actually, I fundamentally have information that would be totally at odds with the conclusion the federal government is reaching before my eyes. But I'm not on the speaker's list, so I'm just going to sit here like a good cop and not say anything here. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be nice, Jen, but yeah, maybe she's dumb. But also, and then the other thing is that there's just, again, this, this uh, bone-deep de- deference to authority here. I don't, I don't want to say anything that will, you know, contradict my superior's that would be embarrassing for them. I just, I'll just, I'll just keep quiet. Yeah. You know, like I mean, isn't, isn't the that thing a pattern I have of to wonder there too? Well, I think, you know, I think with, with Commissioner Lucky in particular, one of the things that jumped out at me after the Nova Scotia uh, revelations where, you know, again, these allegations that Lucky was pressuring local officials to get out there and release information that would be convenient for the government ahead of their gun control announcements. And then, you know, Lucky denied this and then eventually the audio recordings come out and it is dead to rights. It is yeah. like no pun intended, Jen. This is a smoking gun. Yeah. And it is exactly as it had been portrayed. And what jumped out at me when that happened was that I could almost rationalize how that could have happened. And it, like, it, it's, still, it's still a firing offense. It's still career ending. But I kind of said to myself, you know what? The RCMP didn't perform well in Nova Scotia during the massacre. I think Lucky knew that. Maybe she was like trying to go the extra mile to be helpful and cooperative and kind of without thinking it through, stumbled over a red line here, but it was in the service of like trying to uh, earn some brownie points before the investigation began into how our own force had handled this. What I'm looking at now and what we're all looking at now, Jen, I think is really much, much more what you're talking about here. Too deferential to authority. Mr. Trudeau might've put in an RCMP commissioner deliberately or otherwise, who is way too uh, pliant to the government's whims for her own good and the good of the RCMP. Which uh, again, would, would, would follow in a pat, <laughs> excuse me, a pattern of behavior for everyone involved. Would it not? Yep. Yep. 
Okay. No, it would. Um, you know, we, we've seen the federal government before willing to break rules or bend conventions in the pursuit of political agenda. Uh, even, you know, of course, like they love talking about the rules based international order and they just run roughshod over our own domestic rules based order. And we've seen before in other contexts that this is a, a prime minister and a prime minister's office and a cabinet that likes people who do what they're told and doesn't like people who don't do what they're told. There you go. Well, all right. So a couple other things to note. You're going to write that up, I think, because you're the one who's who's become our poet guy. Um, a couple yeah. of things things that things is that one there was um a really amazing twitter thread by uh queens park oh what what are, what is the place that she works i'm sorry i'm still not entirely well so uh, people who have read my queens stuff park today, know that i've i've basically been two months of non-stop illness and i'm today's no today's no uh, exception yes allison smith from queens park today uh she attended this event where Toronto Star co-owner Paul Rivett spoke. And of course, Rivett is in the midst of this really ugly split up with his business partner, um, Betove, John Betove, um, who also owns the Star. Apparently there's just irreconcilable differences about where they want to take Tour Star. And uh, Rivett just apparently got on stage with full-on DGAF vibes and said some pretty amazing things. And she just started tweeting it. Uh, Essentially, um, uh, there's a real disagreement between him and Beethoven about whether or not C-18 makes any sense. Rivet said the star was losing a million dollars a week, which is uh, pretty extraordinary. Although it sounds like it's more like Tour Star, not the, 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 the paper alone. Um, both of these people want to split the asset as quickly as possible. Um, actually, there was a great quote from Allison. This is a quote directly. They, the government, they started giving us money. The conditions, oh, sorry, not the government. I apologize. No, Rivet said that Meta and Google had, they, Meta and Google had essentially created these, these secret deals with many major newspaper um, uh, companies, presumably with a goal toward uh, circumventing C18, which would then force deals upon um, these, these giants, these tech giants. And so Rivet essentially went on stage and said, and I quote this, uh, they started giving us money. The conditions of this money is don't say a word about it. Um, and Allison Smith was like, holy shit, I don't think anyone's actually said that aloud, uh, uh, for, uh, out loud before. So that was fascinating. Um, yeah, and there was also some pretty uh, astonishing sort of tea on on Bitov. Uh, he basically, this is again quoting Allison, Bitov's talking about how online metrics helps the paper know its audience. Without that quote, we go out of business even quite quicker. Jesus Christ, I mean online metrics or something that newspapers have had for for 20 years but thanks for coming late to the party but anyway um so this was just a really interesting thread that i think everyone within the industry noticed and almost nobody outside the industry noticed because it was some really inside tea but i think that's probably worth a little bit of a dispatch uh do you have anything you would want to note about it you were you were watching it too at the time and you were kind of astonished weren't you well, what I was astonished by, and sure, I could write about this, I, I would have to disclose on my own behalf, and I think yours as well, that you and I both contribute as freelancers to the star. So it is in, or you did before, I know you're at the Globe now, but previously you had contributed to the star. Um, so yeah, I mean, I at the very least have an have a ongoing stake in the, in the paper's longevity and health. But what, what jumped out at me... Um, Again, is some of the only times I've ever really gotten in trouble from my bosses in my career is when I've told people the truth. Mm. Like when I've just when I have just decided, fuck it, I'm tired, YOLO, 
here is what is actually happening in this business or in this industry. Like when I've answered questions too honestly, or when I've offered too much information mm-hmm. and nothing I heard on the stage in Toronto on Thursday struck me as untrue. And if anything, this is the way, and look, you and I are operate a very small journalism shop. So we are owners of a kind. We, we're not at the scale of tour star or anything like it, but what I was hearing on the stage is how we talk to each other when we're not doing podcasts, when we're not on TV, when we're not in columns. Like, it seemed to me just kind of a remarkable outburst of honesty from senior officials. And it was not shocking because we learned anything we didn't know, or at least we couldn't have guessed. Like, I didn't know the, the burn rate for Torstar's cash reserves. Like, I honestly didn't know that. But I, I would have guessed it was losing money. And everything else we knew, but we just don't often discuss here. People yeah. don't understand the, the financial pressures the newspaper industry is under, and they don't understand how compromising it could be to have either the government or big tech or both in some kind of relationship coming along with the, the cash to potentially save it, and you don't know what strings are attached. Right. So... Anyway, totally agree with that one. I just thought that that was worth notice, noting and maybe giving uh, Allison some some due props for because uh, it was an interesting little uh, thing that she managed to tweet. Um, the other two things that are definitely on my radar was, of course, um, Justin Trudeau uh, is, is doing the international circuit. I believe he's in G20 now, but earlier in the week, he was at the ASEAN Summit in Cambodia. And somebody kind of uh, yep. asked him a bit of a gotcha question. Uh, they said, you know, you, you know, the Canadian Parliament has declared what's happening in China with the Uyghurs uh, uh, a genocide. Why won't you? And he just kind of gave this uh, thousand yard stare for a couple of notable beats. And then he launched into this diatribe that essentially said, like, look, it's not for me to, dis- to dictate what makes a gen- genocide. There are experts for that, blah, 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 blah. And he got just roasted on, roasted for this. I mean, for obvious reasons. I mean, this is someone who's been extremely uh, candid about calling everything that Canada does or has done a genocide at home. And yet, you know, the second he's out of the country and there are consequences for using that word, uh, especially diplomatic and political consequences, he kind of freezes up and refuses to use it. I understand the hypocrisy of that, but here's where I'm going to offer a rare defense of Justin Trudeau. I actually think he handled that question pretty well. Yeah, well, okay, that's interesting. I mean, I'm 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 curious to hear why you think he handled it well. I think there's no good answer he could give to that question because he is a hypocrite on this question. And I think this prime minister has often got himself into trouble when he tries to strut, when he tries to preen, when he tries to show off, when he tries to do as his father did in pirouette in front of a crowd. Like when Justin Trudeau is a very performative man, and I know I know people often think that's a criticism. I don't even mean it as a criticism there. I just mean it as an observation. He's very good at the performative side of politics. He tends to struggle more with execution, and I think on the genocide issue, it made good sense for him to, in the political context of the moment, to say, oh, yes, Canada is, is genocidal against Indigenous peoples. And he didn't think it through beyond how it would play in that exact moment in time and what it might commit himself to. And it was our, our old colleague, Jonathan Kay, who noted immediately at the time 
when the prime minister acknowledged that it, that in his view Canada was genocidal towards indigenous peoples, but and he didn't really commit to do anything about it. It created this weird dissonance of the prime minister basically being, I am prime minister of a genocidal nation. Let's go talk about infrastructure. Like it, it set up the prime minister in a really difficult political situation. What was interesting about this was that it was on the international stage and the foreign press uh, tends to give the PM a rougher time often than the Canadian one does. So here's the thing that I would say is that when the question of genocide came up in Canada, I mean, we all know that occasionally Canada goes through these paroxysms where there's, I mean, I'm sure that uh, cultural revolution China had similar things where everybody would have to say things um, that would demonstrate their fealty and, le- and, and loyalty to the new regime, right? Like, um, uh, I've the last one I can remember, for example, is remember uh, in 2020 when everybody had to had to acknowledge that systemic racism was a thing, and so everybody was being peppered. Yep. Everybody with any authority was being peppered with these gotcha style questions. Do you think systemic racism is a problem in your small independent, you know, arts magazine located in the suburbs of Winnipeg? You know, like this became a thing where for a, like solid six months, everybody got hit with the. Uh, say the words game. You have to you have to acknowledge that systemic racism is a problem, um, and this this really became a show of virtual fealty and loyalty. Um, and genocide, we went through a similar paroxysm with the genocide stuff after the missing um, um, indigenous um, mur- missing murdered indigenous women inquiry. After the findings of yep. that came out and said that it was it was genocide, again, like everybody got peppered with this gotcha question. You know, admit it was genocide, admit it was Do you genocide. accept the findings of yeah. Do you accept the findings, blah, 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 blah. And again, it, it served yep. the same, it served the same function. We all know that Canada was not actually literally admitting to being an active genocide state. This was a show of of deference and fealty to a particular ideological agenda that wants, you know, a proper reparation and reconciliation with First Nations people. It was it was symbolic is what it was and everybody knows that it was symbolic because otherwise as you said there would have been you know people would have treated it as if Canada had actually admitted to genocide there would have been you know UN repertoires and 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 uncovering of mass graves and you know we'd be we'd be staring down some Nuremberg trials the fact that that never happened indicates to you that this was this was all about uh, um, a kind of internal symbolic quasi-religious um uh uh demonstration of 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 deference and fealty so okay we all know that but i think i agree with you when he goes to to uh, like cambodia or um you know talks to xi jinping the the, the president of canada of, of of china they're no longer engaging with these symbolic shows of of, of difference and fealty anymore. Now we're dealing in a world where these words have real and legal meaning and power. And um, as a result, so when he goes and he gets asked that gotcha question in that context, you're right, there is no good answer. Because if he comes right out and says, yes, of course it's genocide. Well, Jesus, he's in the middle of the Asian summit in Cambodia and he's about to go to the G20 
and he actually has real a real diplomatic agenda that he has to 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 try and deal with with China. I mean, there have been lots of interesting reports about China, for example, trying to influence our last last election by paying for for um, uh, uh, federal MP candidates. Um, you know, there are tons of low level trade issues that are still outstanding. You know, we actually have to maintain a diplomatic relationship with this with this uh, country. So if he goes in at the ASEAN summit and says, "Yep, China." genocide nation, you know, that is going to completely derail any actual practical diplomatic agenda that he has coming up. So there's no good answer. There's no good, good uh, way to respond in this particular moment. And I thought that considering the fact that it was a trap from which there was no escape, he actually handled it reasonably well. So I think that that's a, that's a going hard on him on what was clearly a gotcha is perhaps a bit unfair. You know, it was it was not that was not an easy to manage situation, and uh, I think that he did actually reasonably well given the given the, the circumstances that he had in that moment. I'll meet you this far. I'll go this far. The prime minister probably handled that about as well as he could have, given his own completely hypocritical and nonsensical position on the matter. Uh, yes, I think you and I would be in perfect agreement on that very point. When you think about what happened later, and this was at the G20, and this was when the uh, the Chinese President Xi uh, came up to him and chewed him out for speaking um, for, like they had had a, a chat before, and then the Canadian papers had all the details like the next day. And then uh, President Xi, like, kind of walked across the G20 floor and chewed him out. I thought it was a really interesting inkblot test moment, right? Because everyone who already likes Justin Trudeau was like, man, he handled that amazing. And anyone who doesn't like Justin Trudeau is like, wow, look at that beta cuck getting totally owned by the big, <laughs> strong leader. And I think I was in a, a very small minority, which didn't take either of those views I just was kind of like, oh, wow, okay, so the prime minister has been having a lot of bad news stories lately about um, being soft on China. He just got chewed out by the Chinese premier and a Canadian press camera crew just happened to be ready to catch the moment. I mean, I don't know if I necessarily read anything into it at all, except for the fact that it's very interesting to me that that Canada is increasingly, it appears to me, Canada appears to be China's go to for a kind of proxy diplomatic warfare against the US. Right? Um, Canada is not cooperative enough with the Chinese for the Chinese to be happy with us, which is why we are the focus of so much of their uh, political ire and attention. And yet we're not strong enough to single handedly stand up to them. And we don't have the US, US support reliably enough to stand up to them directly. So as a result, any time that China is pissed off at the West broadly or America specifically, you know, we're just really easy targets for them, right? We're really easy targets for this kind of proxy diplomatic rhetorical warfare. And I just think that's an interesting place for us to be. I'm not sure we have to care. Yeah, I, th I think you're right about that. But I think like there might actually also be like you gave a very well thought out rational geopolitical analysis of why that is. I'll just be more cynical here. I just don't think the Chinese like us. I don't think they like 
Justin Trudeau. Like, you know, I've, for, for all, yeah. I think all the things you just said are true here, but I also just don't, don't discount the fact that I think President Z likes punching us in the face. Well, not only that, but I mean, like, Canada right now, I think, is a perfect encapsulation of Western hypocrisy, aren't we? Like, aren't we just, like, the perfect example of just smarmy, self-involved, self-congratulating Western hypocrisy? Aren't we just like, wouldn't, wouldn't you want to punch him and punch us in the face? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think that we're, we're a, an obvious target for this sort of stuff because we're weak, but we're all an obvious target for this sort of stuff because we're, we're just smarmy and self-congratulatory. I wish I did not agree with that, but I absolutely agree with that. And it's also one of the things that makes it all the more attractive to punch us in the face is that we don't acknowledge we're weak. Like, yeah. you know, and this, yeah. this is not, this is not a, a Trudeau thing in particular, or even a liberal thing, because Stephen Harper, you know, he shook Vladimir Putin's hand. was like, you better get out of Ukraine. Yeah, you better get and out of Ukraine. You we will, yeah, Do we what? will fail to spend any money on securing our own Arctic. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Like we, you know, the old Theodore Roosevelt thing, like we walk softly and carry a very, very small stick. Yeah. But then we expect to be invited to all the big boy clubs. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, like, I don't know, if I were Xi Jinping, I'd I'd probably punch us in the face. I, I don't know. I, and I say that as like I'm no fan of China. I think those. I think I think I think no, what they're doing. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I get it, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying if you're pissed off at the West and you want to pick on like the weakest, most annoying band of brothers that comprises the West, you'd go for us. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. We'd get the wedgie. Um, well, last couple. thing on my note is an Alberta file. Danielle Smith, Premier Danielle Smith, has gone on the Jordan Peterson show to chat. Uh, she's also sort of acknowledged that her self-proclaimed Cherokee roots probably were not as well-researched as she imagined they were. And then, of course, there's the drama unfolding on Twitter right now. Everybody seems to be tearfully saying their goodbyes as Elon Musk has locked all of the employees out of the building. Pretty great. That, that was funny to me. But first, tell me about the Cherokee thing. I only caught, saw a couple of headlines about that. I didn't follow that closely. Yeah, okay. So basically, uh, for a really long time, years and years and years, uh, Danielle Smith has has claimed that like her I think it was like her great grandmother was Cherokee or something to that effect and like I can relate with the racism that this person is going through because my you know I've got Cherokee roots yeah it turns out so uh Daniel Paradis I can't remember what outlet was this was for I'll double check but Daniel Paradis is a great local writer um she started to look into this and she worked with a genealogist and they could find no actual evidence that she was Cherokee whatsoever and so I think Daniel Smith has had to back down and be like, yeah, I didn't really research that uh, very deeply. So, yeah, that's where we are. I did see one very funny quote this week from her, which was that, like, yeah, I haven't closely examined my roots and I'm very proud of them. Yeah, yeah, like, oh, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. I'm very proud of this thing I do not fully understand. Thank you, Premier Smith. That's a very useful contribution to the discourse. Yeah, pretty much. So, I mean, I, to what extent, I actually have some sympathy for her because, of course, uh, Canada is dealing with a real wave of pretendian scandals. Um, there have been a lot of examples of uh, individuals at fairly high levels in academia in particular, but also in, in the arts, 
uh, claiming to have indigenous ancestry for any number of, of, of self-serving reasons. And then of course, when people start to look into it, they realize that the claims of indigenous ancestry are either very, very thin or, or utterly fabricated and demonstrably false. Um, I have some sympathy for some of these people because it is pretty clear that in some of these cases, you have people whose indigenous ancestry is, is built into family legend and they just kind of take it at face value. And for a really long time, it was normal to claim that without necessarily looking into it or being careful about it. Um, this is particularly true of a lot of white people. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying that that was the case. So it seems to me like this that's probably the case in, in Daniel Smith's case. I suspect that there was no intent to deceive. I just suspect that probably, you know, I think her grandmother's name was Crow, you know, and she was from a place where there was a lot of Cherokee people. Um, and my suspicion is that what happened here is that, that, that it just kind of got baked into family legend and she just accepted it without necessarily looking into it with any depth, which would not be um, uncharacteristic for Smith's character. And uh, I, 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 I think she just got, she just got caught just what it is so like I don't think that this is career ending or anything like that I, I just think it's just one of these examples I okay I will defer to you uh, as always on all Alberta related matters do we have a minute to talk about the Twitter meltdown yes but like five minutes I don't even need five minutes here okay I I'm not, I'm not convinced it's going anywhere I think it might change and it might change so radically that you or I might not see any remaining value in it for our purposes. But I, I, I just think like, do people honestly think they're going to wake up one morning and Twitter will just not be there anymore? It's like, oops, okay. Twitter's gone. Like, you know, like, like it's like the local dry cleaners and it's closed and you're like, Oh, the dry cleaners closed. And you never find out what happened. Do people think that's going to happen with Twitter? Yeah, uh, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. It, it seems like there is actually some kind of weird psychosocial meltdown that is rooted in deep-seated insecurities and problems that I have not begun to uh, untap. But no, Twitter's not going anywhere. And I just tweet, tweeted something to the effect of, oh, what did I just tweet? It was very funny. I thought it was very funny, but then whatever. I ain't going nowhere. I've been here from the beginning and I'll be here until the last Twitter server dies screaming. And then I have a gif of like Lucy from Peanuts staring angrily through the snow. So that's my opinion on all of this. I think like Twitter's okay. just having one of its one of its biannual meltdowns and no one cares. I have not thought deeply about this yet, okay? So here I am maybe doing something stupid. I'm offering a half-baked thought. But is Twitter just a place where cool kids who never felt cool got to hang out and feel cool and now we're worried that someone is going to take it away from us? Yeah, maybe. There could be some of that. Like I I don't I don't dispute for a moment that like and I, I wrote about this recently in the start. I I don't dispute for a moment that Twitter actually has real professional utility for me, for you, for other journalists. It is a useful tool. If you use it properly, it can be a very useful tool. And if I lose it, it will compromise and complicate some of the work I do. But you're not going to see me having some kind of emotional meltdown over it. And some of the reactions to changes at Twitter, to me, have been overwrought and bizarre. Yeah, it is bizarre. There is something psychological going on here, and I haven't begun to unpack it, but it is funny. 
It is funny. Yeah, I just kind of feel like basically, oh no, like the, the cooties are taking over our clubhouse. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of that happening. But anyway, on that note, Matt, I do have to pick up my child from school. I got a conference to get to. You got a conference to get to. I'm very curious to hear about your conference. Uh, do you want to work out over yep. email who's going to write what and when? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to have to write the damn thing on my phone. And apologies to the podcast listeners. I am on my phone because I can't get my damn computer to work. But yeah, I will be able to contribute some dispatch blurbs. We'll talk to our friends and we'll get a dispatch out uh, by tomorrow. Okay, fantastic. And I will try and figure out how to turn this into a podcast. Wish me luck. If you just send me... Oh, you can't send it to me. Okay, no. Zoom will give you the audio file of this meeting. You can just okay. upload it to uh, the the line. Once again, this is this is how the sausage gets made, folks. We're just uh, we're taking our our weekly dispatch meeting and turning it into a podcast for all of your content uh, uh, consumption pleasure. Yeah, pleasure. Okay, thanks, Jen. Thanks for giving me the call on this one. Sorry again. No worries. Talk soon. Thank you to line listeners. We love you all. Take care. Bye. And now.